0: You're listening to Ria Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RiaRadio.com. Welcome to Ria Radio, episode number 22, with Owen Dashner and Mike Schlickburn today. A little special edition.
1: Hey, everybody.
0: Hey, buddies. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Owen's so quiet. Hey, so a little bit different platform today. Today we're going to play uh, our live
2: Omaha RIA event, which we felt like there was lots of nuggets in that one, right, Owen? Great. Uh, great content there. Like We had such uh, experienced guests in, that re- in the RIA event. I think the content is going to blow a lot of people away. And all three of us were there. Uh, yep.
0: So we brought Mike Schlickburn in, too. He felt like he got a lot of nuggets on here. So we just want to spend 10 minutes kind of going over this, talk about Kurti Trivedi, uh Andrea Foley, our, our hosts,
2: and what you guys thought
0: about the, this before we uh, played this live event.
2: Yeah. I, I, well, personally, I was – Really impressed with uh, both of them. They were kind of scrambling because we had a last minute, like we talked about yep. a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a uh, kind of a last minute cancellation because of unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Sanjay was supposed to – so the panel originally was going to be
0: Sanjay Panchal, which Sanjay, uh, he is a hotel flipper. Uh, he's successfully flipped over 20 hotels. Unfortunately, he had some vandalism right before the event happened.
2: Which was crazy. Talk about what, what the video he oh sent Oh, my gosh. she
0: sent me some videos. And somebody literally broke off all the faucets, plugged all the drains, flooded the whole unit, destroyed every single thing in the room, and collapsed the ceilings in the units below him. So he's like – he was in crisis mode. So he missed that one, unfortunately.
2: Uh, but – We we will get him on this podcast. Picture everything, (laughs) anybody you've ever told that you wanted to be a real estate investor that was like a family member, and you're like, yeah, I want to get into real estate investing. Picture every horror story that you could possibly hear. Oh, what if the toilets are clogged? What if the tenants mess up your house? Everything that could have happened. Happened to Sanjay that night. Yeah, and so <laughs> it was not yeah. a great night for some, the yeah the Sanjay clan. And
0: then and then Sanjay was supposed to do our podcast, and then uh, then the following week, and he slipped on some ice and like fractured his
2: shoulder. <laughs> so we had we had he had to cancel it on the podcast. I mean, and uh, actually, and also we recorded an entire podcast with Sanjay. That was an hour and a half long, <sighs> and. <laughs> The, the file got corrupted oh. or whatever. And, and it, we, the content was, was so good. It was so good. <laughs> like, it was such a great episode. And he couldn't participate because the file got corrupted and we lost the entire thing. So well, just, I don't know that he's meant to be on here. Like, I hate saying it. But...
1: Don't they say bad things happen in three? So his three That's things true. are, are tri- done trifecta. and out of the way? Yes. We're yes. good. We're good yeah. now, right? Yep. The he trifecta should, be, he of should be good. It's s- all cleared. It's yes. out of the air. Sanjay debacles <laughs> are over Yes, with. So we
2: can start fresh in 2022 now.
0: Okay, so um, so Sanjay was the first person. The second person was Andrea Foley. I thought she was going to be great for this uh, panel idea that we had because Andrea takes hotels that have kitchenettes and everything in them and turns them into apartment buildings. And she likes she has a little niche of getting they're going to get into about finding blue collar areas. Um, that's kind of like her gold spot. And then they just bought another,
1: uh, place in Florida. They're, they're under contract, under contract. Yeah. So, um, nuggets there. Yeah. Great story of how she came about figuring things out and doing her homework on a place and finding a location. It was just amazing what she shared on that.
2: Yeah. I, I've been, every time I talk to Andrea, like she has something new that I've never thought of. And it's crazy because like, I've been doing this a lot longer and probably way more deals than they've been involved in her, and, her and Axel, her husband. But like she has stuff that I've never thought of, heard of, even spent any time thinking about. And I'm like, yeah. I feel like I'm a newbie when I talk to her because I'm like, what do you think about this? And like I'm, you know what I mean? I've been doing this for a long time, and it's like that just goes to show you can learn something from everybody yes. that you deal yes. with in this. Well, so next week's podcast
0: has Mike Schlickburn in it, and uh, and I really dun, 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 s- magic dun, dun, Mike. Dun. <laughs> And you uh, should use that name at the end. <laughs> um, and I really uh, think that you're gonna, you know, I when I think of them, Mike, I really think of them as kind of like you guys uh, in your beginning years. So well, thanks, uh, Ted. You know, I think that uh, you know between you and Jerry, I think that uh, I think the Foley's are kind of like in in that process.
2: And there's, I think there's a lot of similarities between the, mm-hmm. the two couples, so which was super cool because Kurt Trevetti, who uh, was the other guest that night, was has been doing this for a long time, like what 20, 25 years. Well, you know,
0: I actually I, I get to it in our interview a little bit. I, I don't know if that part will be in our in, in the cut or not, but Kurt Trevetti, um, I've known for twenty years. So when Mike and I used to work at OmahaNightlife.com together, uh, Kurt. Ran a uh, a couple hotels that had restaurants in them. One in Omaha, one in Lincoln, and actually the one that we held the event at that night. And uh, we did marketing advertising for his restaurants. And I and he was a little bit smaller then. I I didn't didn't know that I didn't put it two and two together. And then um, Kurt Trevetti's kids play rugby with my son, and him and I just hit it off really well. Became uh you know we chatted up, became friends at the event. And at some point there. My mom comes in to and my mom's like oh I, I've done some design work on his home and and so she's like tells me that, that she knows him doesn't mention hotels Well um, our uh, our venue that we were at, uh, we were at Anthony's steakhouse right and Anthony's just couldn't service the amount of people that our, our RIA groups bringing in nowadays so i'm like i'm sh- i'm trying to shop places and my mom was like well Carl Kirchvedy he has a hotel that can probably fit your venue uh, and i'm like and i'm like what his hotels and then everything starts like coming in like all these memories start flashing for me and like oh my gosh i've known this guy for twenty years and then I and I ran to Kurt and I we were going over that and he's like, Oh my gosh, I didn't put all that together either <laughs> So just a whole bunch of circumstances. That's Omaha, Nebraska for you. It's the it's the big small town, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But
2: No, but uh, awesome, awesome content there. And Kurt uh, talked at length about all the ins and outs of the operating and owning a hotel and what to look for and how he got got started and how he's able to run it successfully and expand and how the pandemic affected uh, all their operations and stuff that we all went through in the last – I mean, this is recent history, right? So it's interesting to see how that, from a business perspective – Building and operating a hotel is similar and a little bit different than single family or multifamily, which a lot of our you know viewers and, and listeners are interested in and involved in.
1: Yeah. yeah. Just a whole nother level of just learning the business that you don't even think about when you stay at a hotel, that he just shared that knowledge. And from the development standpoint, just the whole gamut of everything they do to you know, run a, a hotel. Yeah.
2: And you know, you, we were talking about the whole like, uh, and I mentioned this uh, a couple episodes ago, but. The whole like lifespan of a hotel, right? You can yes. start it out with a certain brand, then it, it, they don't allow you to go beyond a certain shelf life, and then you have to convert it to another brand and then another brand. But um, what, what was what was also interesting about that is like uh, how the how a bank values a property or how an appraisal works with a certain oh, brand versus brand, another. Because yes. yeah. and don't quote me on this, but he was saying like, okay, let's say this is a Holiday Inn. It's worth $20 million based on everything that you see here. And let's say it had a different brand on it and it was an off brand or a mom and pop or whatever – it might be worth $12 in value. Million. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. how that the value. Yeah, name like just the name the tag on yes. it just yes. it adds so much yes. or takes away so much value. So that was something I had no idea about. So I think no. listeners are going to really get some value out of uh, for for sure. checking out this episode. Even if you don't have any plans on hotel development, it's still good info to know, right? And all the profit centers and expenses that are involved in hotels, how they're affected by pandemics and just like crazy good yes. stuff. I, I was fascinated. I could have talked for another couple hours out of that, <laughs> (laughs) Well, it's just, it brings it
0: back to the mindset of there's, you know, real estate investing is just not single families. It's single families, multifamilies, it's it's Airbnbs, it's hotel
2: investing, it's Um, industrial retail, like all office, all, all the segments,
0: there's so many different facets and and the more, you know, the more rounded you are and you can
2: really start to find who you are and what your niche is in this business. Right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you know, what's cool is like when you meet people like, uh, like Kurt and Andrea that have been operating and Sanjay that have been operating in the hotel business for years and years and years, right? They've know that they know that business. That's their, that's their wheelhouse for the most part. And like, you know you know developments, you know, multifamily, you know, flipping, like I know flipping and, and uh, residential and commercial a little bit and multifamily a little bit. And Ted, you know, a lot about the brokerage side and uh small multifamily and helping investors and brokering deals and and all that. Right. Yeah. Everybody knows something and you can get something from everybody. That's like, don't discount any conversation that you're going to have with an experienced investor, even if they're not operating in the same sphere as you, yeah. like he has the hotel knowledge that you're like, Oh my God, this is an encyclopedia set. That's uh, Kurt Trevetti, you know what I mean? And Andrea, the same thing. Like She knows way, way more than I do about any of this uh, stuff involving hotel conversions. So I get excited and geek out about the like new things. It's fun yeah. learning about new stuff, right?
1: Yes, I, I do too. It, you know, there's so much knowledge out there too, just learning from everybody and then finding your niche and going with it. Or maybe you pivot and do something different. I want to learn about this and picking up that knowledge and just taking it and running with it. And just learning from every, everybody, it's just exciting to be in this market around people. I, I love real estate and learning all facets of it, and I know you guys do as well. So
0: Now tell me, is there any of you guys that are like, maybe I need to look for a hotel?
2: Oh, for <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, matter of fact. Uh, it's, it's been in my mind, but it's like where do you, I focus my attention, you know? But what so. But
0: what, what do you do? What do you do would you flip one or would you develop one or would you make one in an apartment complex? Okay, here
2: here's what I would do personally at my stage and my, you know, investing and, and just like what I want to be involved in. I would be interested in participating in a hotel conversion, like uh, from hotels to apartments, as a limited partner or a JV. I don't want to be the one that's deciding everything. I don't want to be the one that's meeting contractors and 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 getting permits yeah. and all that. I, I, w-
1: I would be that piece for you. Yeah, like
2: <laughs> there you that, go. But see, there you go. Like, I knew I, this was going to come yeah, together right I, there. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't want to. Like at this stage, I don't want to be out there every day yeah. and doing all that stuff. Yeah. I would just rather trust somebody that mm-hmm. knows what they're doing and put my money to work with that person that I trust. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I'm talking to, you know, Andrea and Axel about uh, the project they have in Florida that Mm -hmm. looks like kick ass. I mean, like everything they've described about it makes complete sense to me. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't want to know everything about it. I need to know that, you know, a lot. And, and I'm comfortable with that. And so I think there's different levels of vetting you can do with people that you're going to partner with. But um, there's just mm-hmm. – I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, when you first start out, you don't want to advise anyone to go out and learn everything about everything because then you're just going to chase the shiny object. But once you've been doing this for, like, a long time and you've gone, mm-hmm. like – a mile wide and an inch deep in a couple different areas. You can start branching out, yeah. learning a little more, you know, little more segments of the real estate investing game, and layer those on and learn more. Now yes. I'm kind of into that. Like I want to learn more about hotel conversions and and yeah. uh, like maybe storage units and whatever. So, yeah. Oh, Mike okay. keeps it fresh. Get it- I agree, but out of okay. all of us,
0: Mike, you you gotta have a little bit of experience in this because you bought the what they call the Offit Manor, yes, and you're doing a bread and breakfast, right? Yep. So you're getting a little bit of feel of this hotel life, aren't you?
1: Yeah, on the Airbnb aspect, and uh, Kurt did bring that up too, and in, in that event about how hotels compete with Airbnb, so that was great information as well.
2: Oh yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, with oh, all that the that was uh, a good nugget. Yeah, the city politics involved in mm-hmm. the hotel lobby and taxation and like you know wanting to like. You know, block out Airbnbs from operating. Yeah, that so, was good. That was a good one. So
0: in the in this too, you also to listen. Uh, Owen asks a question uh about what's the biggest profit center, and I don't want to give it all away. But what is the biggest profit center for your Airbnb, your Airbnb bed and breakfast? How many units is that? That
1: one's nine units. So okay.
0: So do you have like a profit center that's outside the Airbnb where you're making some money?
1: Uh, We're holding events there. Holding events, events, event space at that. That's just a unique property where we're able to hold events there. Small events.
2: It must have a big, uh, a Uh, fairly big common room, and you can have like maybe uh, wedding receptions,
1: wedding receptions, um, dinner parties, mystery dinner parties is another aspect we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, isn't this like a haunted mansion? There's reports of that. Yes, it's on the list of haunted places, too, in Omaha. Unconfirmed but, and, and paranormal And I have stayed there, and I did not witness any paranormal activity. He's a heavy sleeper. You, though. Yeah. you, you, yeah, you yeah, stayed in the room, didn't the, you? The, room. There's, the a, room. there's a room where uh, somebody, the owner, committed suicide, and supposedly there was a bullet stuck in the ceiling. Somewhere so Mr. Offitt yeah. offed himself in the cigar room. Whoa.
2: Yes. I
1: did not know this. I'm kind well, of so there's a whole story behind it, you could look it up on the internet. But yep. a little
0: teaser a little for teaser. you people. Can we can we put some notes in the show notes on that one? about the haunted mansion, then the Offit
2: Manor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's super cool.
0: Uh, so, uh, real quick, before we conclude here, have you ever thought about like adding like you know bottle service inside
1: the units or
0: and like do you and, and yeah. put little tags on it?
1: And uh, there's permits that are involved in that to serve alcohol, but I'm not Yes, so it's an option. Is it option. serving? though? is it serving? To put- provide. There's little... there's certain things you have to look into to do What that? about
0: single-family Airbnbs? Do you, do you have to get a permit to, to have a little little bottles in there? I'm
1: not familiar with that. You could uh, accidentally sure. leave yes, uh, a bottle of champagne yes. in a bucket with ice. Who knows yeah. where that came from? Yes. This yeah. is a
0: donation price? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I mean, think about that aspect of it. Well, There's okay. a, there's a uh, Mexican restaurant in West Omaha. I won't name names here. But when they first opened, it was right by where uh, my wife and I lived. And I won't mention the address, Ted, before you ask. And uh, they opened, and they didn't have their their uh, liquor permit yet. So we would go in, but I'd be like, "Do you guys have any, you know, beer or whatever?" And they're like, "Well, we have beer, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you wanted to like leave a leave a tip, it has oh. nothing to do with the alcohol, mm-hmm. but we may leave some on the counter." And it may, you know, may end up on your table. We don't know how all that works. It was a free donation. Yeah, free, free donation. donation, free well donation. Yeah. Uh So, yeah. so there's workarounds. There's let's say, yeah, like, per se, yeah, per per yeah. se, they were per se, allegedly, <laughs> they gonna risk you with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, hey guys, I think for right now we need to get into our golden nuggets. Wait, 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 Ooh. wait, wait, wait. wait. Hey, I'm a newbie here. Mike Schlickburton didn't, didn't say it with us, and he's our, he's oh, our, yeah. our host in the morning show here with us. So oh, right. I feel special. Now. Okay, let's try it one more time. And without – I think it's time that we get into our golden, golden nugget. nugget. How'd that feel, Mike? Nuggety. Nuggety. <laughs> 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 well, today's golden nugget is – Finding off-market properties. I, I feel like as a new investor or even experienced investor in, in today's climate, it's really difficult to find off-market properties. And we always keep on mentioning that you know you can use your realtors or you can use wholesalers, but there is various other sources to find off-market opportunities. Wouldn't you agree, boys? Yes. I'd agree. And so a couple of – these are the sites that I make my real estate team – check out on a regular basis because there is deals on them so first one is zome xome.com zome is an auction site I personally bought probably about uh not personally bought but for uh, our clients or our group we bought about 20 properties off of zone foreclosure.com hud home store.com now with hud home store you need to pay attention with that, too, because that one, there is a time period that only people that are actually going to live in the property, non-investors. Owner-occupants. Owner-occupants, like you can buy the houses. So I think they get like the first 10 or 14 days. And after that, then investors can put their deals in. Now, if you are an investor and you don't own your own property uh, and you would potentially live do a live-in flip, this could be an opportunity for you to kind of get ahead of the game. Auction.com, great opportunity is Facebook Marketplace. I've gotten tons of good leads off Facebook Marketplace. Same. Um, Craigslist.com, believe it or not, still a very, very strong place to find deals um locally we have a daily record but nationally I'll,
2: Owen what would you call these t- types of uh, ma- magazines yeah daily record uh, locally in Omaha is basically a publication where any lender that is foreclosing on an, uh, a property that has a sale scheduled it's a legal requirement that they have to advertise in a public place what the the sale price or the upcoming sale price is or the amount owed on the property and uh, when the auction date is, they have to advertise that. And every locality and state may have different regulations on that, but each city is going to have probably a publication where your lender is going to advertise upcoming foreclosure sales. Find out what that is, and either subscribe to it or get you know get involved so you can view the listings on there. It's a great great source. And
0: if you're in the local Omaha re- area, Daily Record is also a sponsor of the Omaha area. And we do have a coupon code for them to get you 20% off a subscription. So let me know uh, on Facebook if you do want that discount code.
2: One one other uh, tip on, on the uh, auction part of it. Each county, typically, if you're going to have a foreclosure auction coming up, The county will have a sheriff auction if that's the state that – like each state is different. You may have judicial or non-judicial foreclosures. But um, like, for example, in Omaha, we have two different counties that basically the city is kind of bisected by Sarpy County and Douglas County. And each one of those will have uh, an upcoming foreclosure auction. Pottawatomie County on the other side of the river in Iowa, they have their own site. So if you go to potco.org they will have a section for sheriff's auctions. So you can find the upcoming list of sheriff sales there, find out what the opening bid is, the property address, who the known uh, you know, successors are, who the heir is, who owes the money, who's the defendant in the lawsuit and all that. And then uh, you may be able to attend those and find out what the opening bid is. So just some quick tips there on, uh, on sheriff's auctions, which we haven't touched on much.
0: Yeah. Well, before we get into our live event, can you guys tell me what out of these sources I mentioned, or if you have an additional source where you think you've gotten your – uh, most amount of leads,
1: uh, wholesalers for me. Uh, you know the yeah. guys that are sourcing it. We're happy to pay the wholesaler their fee that they make on the property if it works for us on the numbers. But also, yeah, joining groups on Facebook as well. A lot of people post leads that they have for sale on Facebook.
2: Yeah, that's a good tip. And of course, there's you know inbound marketing leads too, which we haven't touched on. But like you know direct mail and and uh, SEO and pay per click and you know having online presence and all that all that fun stuff. Cold calling. But uh, just as the sites that you can actually go to and and find things, I would say over the years, my probably highest profit center has been Craigslist, closely followed by Facebook Marketplace. If I'm just going to look at the uh, the online segments of this, and Craigslist, like I've literally been like awake, couldn't sleep, and I've been surfing and looking at Craigslist and being like, wow, this looks like a deal. And I've made, I probably have made just by lying awake and looking at Craigslist, I would guess over 200 grand. Uh, in over the last probably 15 years, just just by looking at Craigslist on flips, and I'm talking easy deals. So don't skip over that just because it's like an outdated site or whatever. But Facebook Marketplace, we bought a deal recently that was two duplexes off a of 32nd to Haskell that we bought for like 220 grand, which is going to, they're probably going to be worth $500,000 by the time we're done rehabbing them oh, wow. off of Facebook marketplace and nobody else bought them because we were first in and we were, deal- we were willing to deal with a problem. That was a, a problem, right? It was somebody that, you know, was an uncooperative tenant and, and like combative and couldn't get in. We bought it and we're going to do really, really, really well on that. So don't skip over those things. I know everybody has their own marketing channels, but don't forget about the, the little guys.
0: Well, I tell you what, uh, zone.com, uh, hudhomestore.com, Facebook, Craigslist, equally have all been very, very beneficial to myself and my clients I work with. Uh, but I have to tell you, when when it's all said and done, shameless plug, I made more contacts for properties, uh, through our local RIA group. Oh, sure. Uh, before, before even, uh, taking over the local RIA group, I was, um, Actually, uh, Mike's Mike and his wife were big time when I came working for them. They're like, you need to just go to the meetups nonstop, nonstop. So yes. I did that every single um, – Networking month. is key. Built built my network, got the leads, and which led to wholesalers and everything else. But uh, we've gotten more properties through our local RIA than I have anything else.
2: I don't understand – well, actually, I do understand why. But people, when you bring up, why haven't you been to a meetup? Like there's, we have what multiple meetups in Omaha every month. There's there's some in Lincoln. There's Norfolk. There, you see how I did that, Norfolk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, a <laughs> boy. That's counterintuitive. I want to say Norfolk. Oh, Booth, you got it in her yeah. head, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim, not James. Um, but I think you meet people that are like, oh, I have a lot going on. I have kids. I have family. I have school. We have blah 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 sports events. We get it, right? We get it. Everybody's busy. Everybody has family stuff. It's once a month. Pick one. Go to it. F- line up other ways that you can have your kids watch or whatever. And I get it if are sporting events. I'm a dad too. But make time. This is important, and you can't discount the amount of traction you're going to get out of meeting the people. It's like rocket fuel for your business because you don't know who you're going to meet. And, yes, you could go there, and you could be shy, and you could be an introverted person, and you're like – Oh, I don't – I'm not comfortable talking to people. Uh, But you never know who's going to sit next to you, and you could strike up a casual conversation with somebody, and they could end up being your business partner eventually. Or you could get on a podcast that could end up leading to other things. Like I'm a huge proponent of this, and I will never let it die. But, Mike, what what say you? I mean you're – I would characterize your personality as reserved. You're not like the guy that's going to be the life of the party and in front of the room and attracting all the attention. But you show up, right? What, how would you go about that if you were going to be uh, someone that's maybe a little bit introverted, but doesn't know how they can make the make the meetup work? What would you what What advice would you give?
1: Um, just making casual conversations with somebody, and uh, just find out what they're doing. Just ask questions, um, and and then that's really gets the conversation started. <laughs> if you're only, yeah. And if you're only and if you're only, you offer to buy lots of drinks and shots. Yeah.
2: That greases <laughs> there, the wheels. There, there you go. <laughs> yeah,
1: Yeah. But on that note, too, on the RIA part, I I know a guy that offers capital services that travels the country to all the RIAs, and he said the Omaha RIA is the number two. There's one other one that has maybe a few more people going to it, but we are up there. He lied at me. He told me we're number one over and over again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the amount of people that come and just the energy at the RIA is just unbelievable. Yeah. The, The deal flow and everybody's talking about different deals going on it's it's really exciting what we have going on all right
2: so everyone listening pull over right now damn it and put february 1st in your calendar is that right ted yeah (laughs) but is
0: this gonna be aired in time for february 1st
2: yes yes okay it will february 1st okay jeff Cohn. let's give a shout out to that this episode right yeah yeah so jeff cone uh, KW Elites, Real Estate Systems. Ted, maybe you know this better than I do.
0: Yeah, so Jeff Cohen's going to be on February 1st. He's going to do a, a event. It's going to be called How to Build Business Through Culture, Leads, Accountability, and Systems. Uh, Jeff has started about 20 different companies uh, that have around the world. He's got over 100 rental properties, and he got all those just in about a year time frame. Uh, he's business partners with Clint Barlett and several uh, other people. But yeah, he's a, he owns... KW Elite, uh, Xarbin Title, Xarbin Mortgage. Um, he's part owner with you guys on Platinum Title. Uh, not Platinum Title. He owns, Galaxy. Galaxy he owns Platinum owns the title. title. Galaxy Title. Yeah, Galaxy Title. He owns with you guys. Um, and then uh, Verley, he owns. And I mean, we just keep on going down the list. Stud. So, well, guys, without any further ado, it's time to get into unique hotel investing strategies with Kurt Trivedi. And Andrea Foley. This was recorded January 4th at the Omaha Ria event Mike, thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me. Owen, thanks for hosting this upcoming event with me. Love it! And I'm it, happy to be here. And if you guys love this content right now, we need to know. So leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Still give us five stars, but just get in the content. Write, write what you think about We this really want to.
2: to be over 30 reviews by the time this airs, guys. Come on. Please. Let's see it.
0: Um, thank you so much for the short notice and what we, we put this all together in what by seven days. So um, that's super awesome. Thank you. Um, but a little background on Kurt, Kurt Manch hotels in all positions from elementary age to late teens, uh, also include construction and expansion into his late teens. He built his first hotel on the age of 21. Uh, he's the only employee for the first 12 months and is over in McCook, Nebraska, uh, Kurt is uh, passionate about delivering exceptional service to guests and a firm believer in transparency and interacting with others. Uh, he joined Dr. I don't, Gengar uh, as a partner in 2005 after I built uh, their first Holiday and Express across the street from uh, Dr. Gengar's Heart Hospital in Lincoln. Uh, Andrea uh, has uh, been a business owner since 2007. She's a president of Pirates to Pixies, owns and operates a corporate retail location. Uh, Andrea is a CFO, a uh, franchise developer, uh, with her passion for numbers, which we do know is true. Andrea has also traveled as a business consultant since 2017. Uh, she's improved her business in a variety of industries, including trucking, retail, oil, uh, oil field services, automotive repair, home modifications, and personal services. Uh, along with her husband, Axel Foley, back there. She has uh, owned single-family rentals, flipped single-family homes, done tenant improvements on four commercial properties, and helped with a small motel to apartment conversion, started a group home for women in transition, currently converting a 32-unit motel out-of-state to apartments, and in negotiations to purchase a 150-unit motel right now in Florida and convert it to apartments. So hopefully I get some updates on that too. So can you guys get a big round of applause to our speakers tonight? Okay, so you guys got mics, so you guys can turn them on. Um, I'll let you guys each take the time you want, introduce yourself further, tell a little bit about your business and yourself, and what, what you got going on right now.
3: All right, I'm going to stand. Okay. Hello? Oh, okay, perfect. Hi, I'm Kurt Trevetti. I'm uh, one of two uh, principals of uh, Anant Hotels. Uh, my partner is Dr. Gangahar. Don't let those initials uh, fool you. He is very, very hands-on, uh, I would, and he's a machine. So we get along very well. Um, my specialty in hotels, um, what we do is we're long-term holders, but we wear all the hats um, from site selection to development to being the general contractor to the opening to managing and so forth. Uh, we do it all in-house. Um, we don't hire anything out. Um, majority of our legal work is done in house as well. Like uh, if we're in a blighted district for tax increment financing or any other type of state programs, that is what we call the key to, uh, one of our keys to our success is that we don't rely on third parties, consultants, people that don't know the business better than us. We didn't know any of this. We figured it out ourselves. And, um, it allows us to control our destination on it. Um, hotels as a sector of real estate. Um, I call hotels real estate, but not so much real estate. Uh, and the reason for that is is that it does have an expiration date. Um, and when I say hotels, I'm talking about branded hotels. And the reason why they have expiration dates is because you're in a license agreement with your franchise. And these brands now have become commodities. I'll talk about the big three, Marriott, Hilton, and IHG. Um, you sign a license agreement with them. Once you go through the due diligence uh, process, they give you a 20-year license agreement. There's no guarantee they renew after that. Um let me give you an example. When I developed this Holiday Inn, I had to compete against eight other developers um, to get the franchise of Holiday Inn. And that's not an easy thing anymore, it's 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 a commodity. Um, who knows who, who does this, and who knows the salesman better and so forth. Depending on your location, your barrier to entry, um, and so forth. They may extend your franchises, but that's the issue with hotels: is they do have an expiration date. Like apartment buildings, there's no brand. You can keep your apartment building for as long as you need. So that allows you to have a lot more uh, futuristic look onto your business performance plans. With hotels, uh, you only have a 20-year plan. Lending, I think, with apartments now, 25, 30 years. Lenders will only give you. Financing, uh, amortization schedules up to the length of your franchise agreement. Um, so it's it's not necessarily bad. It's just a different business model. Also, in typical real estate, uh, the value of the asset is the value of the asset. In hotels, the value of the asset has no, it, 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 it doesn't even play. It's the value of the brand and what's left on the brand and how many years are left onto the brand. That determines the value of this hotel. So, for example, um, and you guys can see this on the Assess website, say this is the $20 million hotel as a holiday inn. Um, That's with a full franchise license left. Now, without the brand, this building wouldn't be worth more than $12 million. That's how important that brand is. So, that's how hotel investment and hotel development is very different than your uh, traditional real estate uh, play is. The right brand, how long you can keep it, how long you can negotiate a, a renewal, and so forth. Now, luckily for us, we're in a higher, high barrier uh, and to entry location, so we already have commitments from the brand that they'll keep extending us because there's really not much that, that much land in downtown, so they don't want to lose having a presence here. But then you have your interstate hotels. Uh, you guys see these four-story stick build stick buildings all over the place. These. Fairfield, Hampton, and Holiday Inn Expresses. The likelihood of having them extend you after 20 years is next to nothing because you got 10 people in line ready to build one right next door to you and the brand may want would prefer a newer building. So that's what kind of gives birth, I guess, to what you do is you find an end use for these hotels, which is phenomenal because, you know, for example... A typical life of a hotel, let's just give you a, uh, an example of a four-story Hampton Inn. Okay, You build it, a uh, 100-room Hampton Inn probably costs about 12 or $13 million. You run it for 20 years if you're a long-term holder, and then after 20 years, they probably won't renew you, so then you downsize your flag from a Hampton Inn, then you go to a Quality Inn, right? But then what does that do right away to your valuation? Your $12 million hotel is now worth eight because you have lower rates, you have lower occupancies. Uh, it's a completely different type of model. Then your um, $8 million hotel, quality, and will probably let you run it for another 15 years, or maybe the new owner buys it, and so forth. But then after the quality, and what do you become? You become an econolodge. And then after the econolodge, the next life, and so forth. But then um, for people like Andrea, then she finds the final life for it. She converts it to an apartment or a shelter or something like that, which is wonderful, but... These are the things that you have to keep in mind if you're ever interested in hotel investment is you can't just say, I own a hotel, I'm done, I'm just going to run it, and that's it. No. You have to think about the 10-year, the 20-year mark, the 30-year mark, the second life of the hotel, the third life of the hotel if you hold on to it, and so forth. So um, it is a very lucrative, very rewarding um, industry, Um, but it is strictly operationally based. Um, when you look at hospitals or apartments or strip malls, it's the real estate that doesn't make the value. There is the services that those buildings provide, right? A hospital is the medical services. The retail is whatever, uh, shop comes into that space and so forth. They sell sandwiches or it's a restaurant or whatever in a hotel. It's the actual asset that, that, that the customer's buying. And the, another unique part about it is is that your inventory, it's very different than any other business. It is tied to that day. You lose that day, your inventory is lost. So for example, I have inventory of 114 rooms here right now. If I don't sell all 114 rooms, I can never make it, make that up the next day. That date is gone. My ability to resell that is gone. Whereas in a, a convenience store, that candy bar, if I don't sell it today, I can sell it tomorrow. At Burger Theory, if I don't sell that burger today, I can sell that burger tomorrow. I can freeze the beef or I can do this and so forth. So there are a lot of different variables when it comes to um, hotels when you call it real estate. It is it is real estate. It's a hard asset. It's brick and mortar stuff. But the value, the way to make money, your NOI, all that is dependent on so many different things that you don't have to deal with when it comes to traditional real estate. Does that make sense? Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, do anyone have any questions? Please feel free to interrupt me. Yes, please. So what Priceline I love that question. <laughs> hey guys, if you have questions, we gotta make sure we do them on the mic because we are recording. So he asked, what did Priceline do to our industry? And what we call Priceline, uh, Expedia, Hotwire, uh, Hotels.com, and so forth, we call them OTAs, uh, online travel agencies. They have crippled the industry, but it's not their fault. It's a business model, and they took full advantage of it. I commend them for it. It is, um, this is going to lead me into another point about hotels. Why it's so easy uh, for companies like Hotwire Expedia and so forth to literally control us. How can I explain hotels as a service? So hotels, I'm going to kind of give you an example here. Hotels, airlines, and car rentals, okay? Okay. Those are all industries where you reserve, book, and so forth. The entire industry uh, depends on those things. The thing about hotels, though, is every hotel is individually owned. So now you have a lot of different interests. When you come to car rentals or airlines and so forth, even though the concept of business is very similar, those are one-owner companies. Or there might be eight airlines in the country and you only have eight big companies to deal with. In hotels, literally in this country, you have over a million different owners. How do you get them all on the same page? You can't. They're all going to make decisions based on their own personal situation and their own personal interests. And they are all varying. So it's, that's one of the issues that this industry faces is that companies like Priceline and so forth get in. They take full advantage of it. I'll give you an example how, how they take advantage of it. And again, I commend them for it. They took advantage of a situation. So say you have a $100 room rate, okay? Of that $100, say you went onto Google and you booked that room through Expedia. You went to Google, to Expedia, and then you booked the hotel room here. And you paid $100. First, after $100, you have to pay a $6 global distribution services fee. That is just for the booking channel to connect your hotel to the, those various outlets to book it then Google charges a 5% commission just because you actually entered in Expedia into the Google search engine. They take a commission. Expedia then takes 10%. And this is not decreasing off the main rate. So you lost six bucks, you lost five bucks, you lost 10 bucks, right there. We're not done. Then you got the franchise. On average, between franchise fees, technology fees, this fee, that fee, whatever fee, it's about 15%. So you got 15, you got 10, which is 25. Then you got another five for Google's charge, 30 and not 36. So your net rate is $64. This is why a lot of brands tell you to book direct and so forth. So a secret is if you ever want to get the best rate, call the hotel, negotiate with them directly. I guarantee you they're going to give you the better rate because it increases their margins and they got more margin to play with. Um, but that's the reality uh, of, of hotels and but the otas the online travel agencies saw an opening they saw how hotel owners were not in sync and you can't organize a million people uh different financial situations different goals different everything and um, they're winning uh during the height of the pandemic when literally majority of the hotels we're selling one to two rooms a night, or if not, we're shut down. That was the ideal situation for the brands to get together and kind of give it, you know, tell the OTAs to go shove it. But it did not happen. Because although ISG, Marriott, and uh, Hilton represent 95% of every hotel in the world, they could not get the owners on the same page. Owners got desperate, and I get it, $100,000 mortgages, $50,000 payrolls every two weeks, things like that. It, 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 uh, it affects your ability to make the right decision. So then they're like, fine, I'll take a Priceline room at $69 or I'll take an Expedia room at $75. I need anything to get revenue right now. So I get it. But it was a huge opportunity missed by the industry. So yes, that, that's, that's how they affected the business and they'll continue to do so. What's going to happen, though, is rates are going to go up in 22 and they're going to. Cons- um, inflation has not hit... Uh, the price point uh, for the consumer in the hotel business yet. Our costs are gone through the roof. Payrolls are up 20, 25%. Construction cost is a whole different level. I mean, an average Holiday Inn Express off the interstate would used to cost pre-pandemic about a hundred to $110,000 a door. Today, if I was able to break, and we're going to be breaking ground in Lexington, it's about one hundred forty-five to 150000 a door. Same rates. Higher payroll and so forth. But again, the nice thing about capitalism it is always correct itself, and you'll see that happening here in 22. Any other questions, Kurt?
2: I, Kurt, I have a question for you. Oh, I think I speak for everyone in here uh, that we. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Uh, you wait your turn, Leslie. Um, I think. I'll speak for everyone here when uh I ask the question mini fridges in hotel rooms are the biggest profit center ever true or false false really yes how do you okay explain that so what what are the like the big profit centers in a hotel you would think intuitively like you grab a Snickers bar it's 10 bucks right does Expedia get in on that too or how does that all that work so
3: the biggest profit centers of majority of hotels and this is gonna this is the truth parking fees um, the market pantry so for example the sodas at our market pantry they're four dollars I pay a buck um, the bag of Doritos I'll still charge you four dollars and I pay 55 cents the thing is about hotels is all about the convenience the food and beverage the market pantry the um, not this hotel, but some of the higher end brands, the coffee, uh, at even up the street. It's amazing coffee, it's roasted for us, but we charge $4.50 a cup. Um, and our cost is about 25 cents. So the rooms, yes, you need the rooms, and there is a bit of margin there, but it's all the stuff that you guys spend on because you don't want to leave the hotel. You stay at a hotel for the convenience. You go to a restaurant for the convenience so you don't have to cook yourself or you don't have to clean your own dishes. That's basically what every all of us here pay for, uh, is for the convenience. Um, so yes, all the when you add all that stuff up, yes, the hotel rooms do provide a large part of the profit. But the real cream is in all the little nickel dime stuff all throughout during your stay. Like for example, this is a water park hotel. It's closed there right now because of the renovation. But you forgot your kid's swim diaper. Well, he's screaming because he doesn't want to wait till mom goes to Target to pick up another swim diaper. You're going to pay us 10 bucks for something that would have cost you a dollar. I mean, it's the truth. It's the truth. That's the reality of the hotel industry. Um, I, I mean, we have scotch here. I would say a two ounce pour of Oban is $18 here, but that's at any hotel. But, you know, if you're, if you're staying at a hotel, you, you're relaxing, you don't want to leave. You're not going to hop in your car and go to the bar, unless that's in your plans for that evening or something like that. But that's just where the the money is uh, in hotels. Food and beverage, your market pantry, your parking fees. There was a time where hotels were charging energy fees and this fee and that fee. Those got all kiboshed because the consumers pushed back. So they find other avenues of doing it. Yes, ma'am.
4: I was wondering, you were talking about the kind of the life cycle of a typical hotel with the branding on it kind of kind of downgrading. Uh, but one thing I've seen is like boutique hotels and they have something different to offer. So say you see an opportunity to turn something into a boutique hotel, aside from location, what recommendations do you have for that?
3: Converting an older building into a boutique hotel.
4: Yeah, you know.
3: Absolutely. So with the new generation, and uh, we spend a lot of time researching the needs and the desires of what the new generation wants. What we're seeing is, um, and I'm going to give you a lot more than you asked for, <laughs> sorry, I, I talk about this all day long, I can, is that uh, they don't save money. And, and those kind of um, facts are very important for uh, hoteliers is because it allows us to, t- uh, to determine what is the average spend per customer for the next generation. We already know for the baby boomers and people my age what those average spends are and what their tolerances are. But with the younger generation the tolerance level is much higher. Uh, They're not buying houses. They're not buying expensive cars. They want experiences. So the entire industry, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this is all happening in front of us, lifestyle brands, Marriott's 32 brands, ISG's buying up different lifestyle brands. There's brands coming out of the woodwork, and they're all about experiences, especially if this new generation coming in because they will spend unlimited amount of money just so they can experience something They can post pictures of Instagram and so forth. So yes, converting older buildings into boutique products, but you have to have a niche uh, service. There is, like for example, even as a boutique hotel, it's all about uh, wellness, mind, body, and health. Wellness. We have yoga studios, spin cycle, uh, spin classes, and spin bikes in the rooms. You can do exercises in the rooms and so forth. That's just one angle. Other ones like the Kimpton is more uh, angle. It's a boutique hotel, even though it's very large. It's an older building. It's all about um, how hotel or hospitality used to be back in the early 1900s. It's very classical, very traditional, and so forth. So, yes, the boutique market is blowing up right now. And I'm not on top, just on top of that is the younger generation wants to stay in older buildings. They want to see history. They want to see the something that they don't see every day. So it is a very large market. Um, Let's give you an example, the Curio. Are you guys familiar with that hotel downtown? That is an old building that turned into a boutique hotel. Now, boutique hotels today are now becoming mainstream. They're becoming branded boutiques. So my traditional definition of boutique is one-off. You know, it's just this one hotel, it's very boutique. It's got its own brand, own style, and so forth. What the big three did, Marriott, G and Hilton, is they've taken the concept of boutique... And they franchise it. So Indigo, Even, Curio, uh, the Farnham, that's a boutique brand as well. Kempton is Boutique. They are making these boutiques mainstream, uh, where each location is slightly different than the other, but they all carry the similar hallmarks for the parent brand.
4: Is there the opportunity to create a boutique brand with the hopes that Holiday Inn or one of the bigger brands would then buy you out?
3: I will never discourage someone from starting their own brand. Um, It's a very big uphill battle because the branding part is easy, the right concept is easy, but it's the distribution. So for example, you guys can book a hotel room from anywhere now on Google, on your this app or that app and so forth, anywhere in the world. When you're creating your own brand, you do not have that infrastructure yet. You have to create that to be able to compete. Um, Not talking about the people in the room, but generally people are lazy, myself included. We want to be able to book easy. We don't want to have to go out and research and so forth. So the chances that someone's going to actually go out and say you're going to stay in Denver, Denver Boutique Hotels, and then you got to go through each hotel's website. You want to research each thing and find out which, you're going to be a couple hours into it. People now want to book very quickly and so forth. It's that distribution channel that is the backbone of hotel, of the hotel industry. And um, the booking systems and so forth that the big three brands have basically spent the last 60 to 70 years developing. If you can find a way to fast track that with a new brand, then absolutely yes. But that will be your biggest hurdle if you're trying to create a new brand.
0: Well, Kirk, can we take a quick break and let let Andrea uh, tell us a little bit about what she's doing and uh, a little bit about yourself?
4: Am I on? Okay. I'm going to sit. That's okay. Um, So I think Ted did a really good job of talking about me and explaining my my background. Um, I was on episode 10 of the podcast, if you guys want to learn more. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I um, currently own a retail store that I am, as of today, starting to train the new owner that I am selling it to. So uh, that way I can focus full-time on real estate. So that's very exciting. And then um, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll have a PSA signed for that 150-unit hotel in... Florida, sorry, I'm like nervous, so my voice is shaking a little, Um, for, to convert it, and it'll be a 126-unit apartment building, so, um, and we're currently remodeling a 32-unit hotel in Colorado, and we're about halfway done with it, um, making it apartments, so that's me in a nutshell.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the hotels you picked and why?
4: Um, So we definitely go to hotels that are um, run down, they have lost every flag. They have, you know, been owned by mom and pop for 20 years. Um, and they have completely neglected them. They've, they're like the slumlords of the hotel industry, I would say. Um, and they're just, they're usually in great locations because hotels are good at that. And maybe the big brands have come in, built a brand new building right next door, and they just can't compete as a hotel anymore. So, um, but being in an amazing location and um, having great infrastructure pretty much already set up for living, uh, it's pretty easy to just switch it over to multifamily. So, but happy to answer any questions too.
0: This is a question for both you guys. Is it more profitable for both either of you to look at either a full service hotel versus a, a what do they call that a not budget or what's the term I want to use there Kurt
3: limited service
0: limited service His mic's not working. limited yeah. limited service <laughs> can both of you guys give your point of view on it, which one is more preferable for you guys
4: I have no interest in a full service because we're going to take all the services away anyway so there's really no point it's not valuable um For it to have any services. So, like for us, especially in Colorado, like we did not want a pool because you're gonna have it open for, you know, two months out of the year. So, like, what's the point of maintaining that? So, but in Florida, the one we're looking at, like it has a pool. So, that's, you have to have a pool in Florida. So, um, it's more about like location and um, amenities as a living quarter uh, that we look for versus. what services are offered currently because those really won't matter for me. So. Uh,
3: the difference between limited service and full services uh, with regards to return on investment. Um, I can never give a short answer, sorry. Uh, limited service hotels, the barrier to entry is very low. Uh, a typical size of a limited service hotel is about 80 to 100 rooms. They're one of the most economical ways to get into the industry. Uh, 10, $12 million, um, usually done by investment groups and so forth. Uh, another benefit to limited service hotels is is the reliance on uh, human capital. Um, you can have one person run the desk. Uh, you got your housekeepers, you got your breakfast host, you got your general manager and so forth. You're not running towels to people's rooms. They're not taking anything to anyone's room. Um, just a lot less overhead. So the demand to perform at a higher level of occupancy and rate is not there, is not as high pressure for you to still um, spit out a profit at the end of the day. But the very high end potential or the top side potential is very limited uh, because all you're doing is selling rooms and maybe a few overpriced snicker bars and sodas in the market pantry. When you look at full service hotels, Um, massive overhead. Give you an example of this hotel. We run two to three desk clerks at all times. We have security in the evenings. We have a water park attendant or two. We have five to six people in the restaurant. If there's a banquet event, we have another five or six people. Um, And that's even if I sell one room. With that being said, though, if the hotel is successful and it operates at a very high level, Uh, high occupancy and your potential to push rate, Uh, the top side is endless because now you have um, in full service hotels are usually in locations like downtowns or very busy suburban markets and so forth. So the rates are much higher uh, than people order room service or they eat at your restaurant or they pay for additional water park passes and they pay for parking and the candy bars are even more expensive uh, because you're giving them an entire experience. So the tendency to want to leave for odds and ends or food and beverage is less than it would be at a limited service hotel. So they end up paying for all those things because they don't. it's all right in front of them. Um, so to maximize revenues and so forth, full service is always the best. But, for example, during uh, the pandemic, uh, we bled badly in the full service hotels that we own the limited service hotels we were able to actually keep them cash flow neutral um, which was surprising Uh, so that is the difference I mean no one's going to have a business model based on COVID no one would have thought that so um, and I don't suggest you do either Um, I I think we all learned a lot from the situation um, what to do and what not to do uh, but there's more capital investment, there's more oversight, there's more sophistication in operations when it comes to full service, but the, the top topside um, potential for uh, higher returns is bigger with the full service. But ease of operation, um, limited but consistent returns, uh, that's what you can get with limited service hotels. So we have a balance of both types of products in our portfolio.
1: Hey, I just wanted to go right off of that into uh, the the thing that I think most of us here are probably more familiar with that might relate to this full service versus limited service is Airbnbs that we own, and as we've come into this, you know, we buy we're we're in the same event season that you're competing in, I'm sure with you know, with the world the College World Series and and the Berkshire Hathaway and all that stuff, and our rates all go up during that time. But during the throughout the year, one of the questions that we've kind of dealt with is how much service do we put into our Airbnb? There's all those nice things that people want to have. Um, you know, you have the coffee maker, you have all that stuff, but there's more that can be done to attract more people because, you know, getting Airbnb to push you up their search, their search and making it more attractive. Do you have any experience with that, either of you? And what are your thoughts on a more full-service Airbnb versus a limited-service Airbnb?
2: Death to Airbnb. Is that what you're thinking right now, Kurt? <laughs>
3: No, 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 no. Airbnb, I'm not against it. So my hotel colleagues uh, think I'm crazy. I love when more hotels get built. Airbnb was probably one of the best things that happened to the industry. For me, competition makes you better. It. Uh, I mean, Bridget from uh, the city of Omaha always calls me when a new hotel is being proposed. I say, great. She goes, are you concerned? I said, no. I mean, those guys are investing their money too. They're not going to, throw millions of dollars at something silly. Um, What it does is it makes us better. More hotels come, I invest more in mine. We did the $7 million renovation here. We're in the middle of it. Um, So don't judge it yet. But it forces owners to take pride in their product and to push a better product, better experience and so forth. So for me, Airbnb, more hotels, all of that, bring it on. And on top of that, it allows us to host bigger events. And you need Airbnb along with hotels to do that. Because if you have a shortage of hotel rooms, which we do lose a lot of events because of the minimal, I mean, we have a lot of hotels here, but we still don't get the big, big events because we don't have that many hotel rooms around the CHI Center still. Airbnb helps with that. Now, to answer your question about full service and Airbnb, wow, I have never thought of that. Um, I do know that a lot of people in tier one markets like Chicago, Kansas City, New York, LA they are building buildings strictly for Airbnb so and Airbnb and hotel rooms are now being marketed on the same websites you go to Expedia first one will be an Airbnb the next one will be a Marriott the next one will be a Hilton and the fourth one will be Airbnb and so forth so I think it's fully interchangeable and it also represents what the consumer wants the consumers are changing right before um, I, I'm going to speak for myself growing up you know, you go to a McDonald's because you know exactly what you're going to get. Or you go to a Burger King or you stay at a Holiday Inn because you know exactly what you're going to get. But now people are after experiences as well, right? So Airbnb offers that. It's unique. It's different. You don't know what you're going to get until you stay there. Um, and then you feed off of other people's uh, comments because you stay at a Hampton Inn, you know what you're going to get. The breakfast is the same. The room looks the same. It smells the same because all hotels have their own signature scents and things like that. But in an Airbnb, you don't. So it's more of an experience, in my personal opinion. Um, But given the Omaha and Lincoln markets, the two areas where you have a higher concentration of hotels, is Airbnb has not hurt the industry one bit. Uh, I think it's enhanced it. Um, And it also gives people an option where in a hotel, you got two beds or one bed, and that's it. You know, in Airbnb, you have customers. I think it's allowed more people to travel that wouldn't have traveled, that travel in larger groups or they want that home experience and so forth, so. um, But still going back, it's kind of in my head now, a full service Airbnb, I've never thought of that. But I think you might have something there. Yes, sir. Thanks,
5: by the way, for You gotta tell me when to stop. (laughs) wealth of information. Well, I was just going to ask you if you ever considered Airbnb, you're in a hotel.
3: Our brands will not allow us to mix Airbnb within our... So the thing about hotels with the big brands, although we own the real estate, it's our mortgage, our name's on the line, they control you. They tell you when to renovate, when not to renovate, what color this, what color that, how to train your employees and so forth. So they will not allow the mixture. But the way around it, which a lot of people are doing in bigger markets, is mixed-use buildings. Where you have, the, like the Farnham, you have six floors of hotel, four floors of apartments, five floors of office, and so forth. And those situations, as long as the ownership deed is separate, then they can't say anything. And that is happening right now as we speak in big markets.
5: I... I made a prediction that the airline industry is gonna go out of business pretty soon with moving people. And I think if you've seen what happened when the pandemic hit. We've seen the rental industry, what went upside down with them, the airline industry, what went upside down with them. They all were hand, had their hands out for money from the government because they were prepared to take it. But uh, is there a possibility that things are gonna evolve? I mean, we're gonna Uber every industry. That's gonna happen, that's a given. There's no no question mark there. So is it possible that the hotel industry could morph itself into something more than a full service, actually be more of a package thing? To um, I, we, we went to the Dells. You ever been to the Dells? Okay, Last summer, yeah. There's a water park, but you don't go there for the motel, you go there for the water park. Or you might go there for the motel, I don't know. It's nice motels, nice facilities. But you go there kind of, both, and they kind of conclude things. You can pretty much have the, the role of the town if you want to have flyers to go to restaurants and get treated differently because you're... So is the hotel industry going to do that?
3: I hope I answered your question if I understood it correctly. The hotel industry has been evolving for the last several decades. Uh, let me give you Las Vegas as an example. Before, the number one profit center for Las Vegas was the casino, not the hotel's. I don't know if you guys remember when you could go gambling casino uh, in Las Vegas nine dollars for the uh, hotel room, two bucks for the buffet, but you dropped your life savings into the gambling table. Now Vegas, their number one profit center is the rooms and the food and beverage. The casino income, although it's in the billions, is third. Uh, everything else sits in front of it: the entertainment, the rooms. Because you you've seen the rooms lately that they're building in Vegas. They keep getting bigger and fancier and more amazing and so forth. The food and beverage, I mean, what is a buffet now? They're 40 bucks a person and they're amazing. And I think that's at a cheap place, right? But, uh, that's normal. Um, so when you're talking about hotel industry morphing, it's been happening and it's becoming more of an experience now. So, um, holiday and expresses that cinnamon roll, right? Uh, that's their thing. um, every hotel is now having a signature item or a signature experience and so forth. Uh, they're not marketing the rooms. They're not marketing that they're marketing the experience now. So that's what it's morphing into. But you also mentioned the pandemic and its effect on the industry. What we are seeing now is a lightning speed change into automation. Uh, in about two months, we're installing check-in kiosks at two of our fairfields fields, uh, one in Creed and one in Lincoln to where, Customer comes in, they go to the computer screen, it spits out the key, they pay, they don't have to talk to a human being. Um, That's just one aspect of it. Restaurants. And you guys have all experienced this in restaurants. How many times have you gone where they don't even give you a menu anymore? You have to take a picture of a QR code. I think that went too far because that annoys me. But you see less and less people and servers at restaurants. I'm not saying this is a good thing. For me, it breaks my heart because this is the service industry. But this is what it's morphing into Less human contact, more experience, uh, and so forth. At Hotel Eve in the market pantry, you go there, you pick out your stuff, you go to a screen, you pay for it yourself, and so forth. It's a double-edged sword. I understand why the industry has to morph into that. The younger consumers want less human contact. They want more tech. They want more experience. People my age and older still want to sit down and talk to the manager or the front desk and have a conversation and so forth. So that's basically what's happening, but it is morphing into more of a non-human experience type of experience, so. Uh, and the room is the last focus. The co- the public areas, you're seeing more bars and lobbies and so forth. It's basically turning into a big party. At the end of the day, it seems like so. Are you seeing like the Dells? Um, at least I can speak from my experience. We stayed at a couple hotels at the Dells um, with the water park. Water park was great. The public area was great. The room was crap. And that's basically how it was. Um, I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys stayed at Wolf Creek Lodge. Um, The whole thing is amazing. The lobby, but the rooms are very basic. So that's, That's basically, in my opinion, I see the hotels, um, you're saying, evolving. It's more into the experience, the public space, the services they provide, and the rooms are taking a back seat. I don't like it, but at the end of the day, it's not my decision to make. It's the consumers, so.
2: Andrea, I've got a question for you.
3: How and why did you get started
2: in looking for hotels to convert to apartments as opposed to just looking for good deals on apartments like most of us? Schmucks. (laughs)
4: So the easiest, simple analogy for that is when you're buying a flip, where do you buy them? You buy the shittiest building in the nicest neighborhood, right? That's where you make your money. So same thing with hotels. Like, everybody wants to buy apartments, and so they overpay for them, in my opinion, because (laughs) when you look at what I pay for a hotel versus what I would pay for what we're gonna sell the hotel for, like it or the apartment for it's extreme, so um it's just people not having vision and not being able to see beyond the fact that it's a hotel, right so if you not everybody has vision, so and i I have maybe a little too much vision, so <laughs> um just it's it's like I don't know it just, it's just it's already set up for it, I don't have to spend. So, here's an example. Most of the groups that I'm in, you know, they talk about how much they're going to spend per key or per unit. It's kind of the same thing. And, um, you know, they're they're looking for $100,000 a unit um, in multifamily. And we're trying to buy units for, like, twenty dollars to $30,000 a unit. So, yes, we're going to put renovation into that or money into that. But, like, you guys know just as well as I do when you're flipping a property, like, you, if you figure out the ARV and you want to put the money and the work into it, like there's huge profit margin to be had. So I guess that's why I guess that's the, the answer.
2: Now, I'm curious. I, I know we've talked about this a little bit offline, but how do you decide on what market you're going to pursue? Mm-hmm. What makes a good deal versus a bad deal? Maybe you could just give an yeah. example of the the uh, hotel you bought in. Is it Craig?
4: Yeah, Craig, Craig Colorado. Colorado. So where,
2: where is <laughs> Craig, Colorado?
4: Craig Colorado is a tiny 10,000 person town in um, about 40 miles outside of Steamboat Springs so resort town um, so first before I get into that one like I would I would tell you guys like I will probably never buy a hotel in Omaha and convert it to apartments and the reason being like the market doesn't really demand that here because we're lots of families right so, The markets I'm looking in are very high single people households or maybe two people in a household. That is not the average household in Omaha. So, like, the risk here would be higher not knowing if you're going to be able to rent them. I still think you would if you made them bigger, but you'd have to, like, combine more units in order to make them more desirable for Omaha families, right? So where I'm looking, the market has to be really low crime because I am um, I think that's really important. And then really great industry, like multiple industries. So not just like one um, industry supplying all the workforce, but multiple industries. And so you just have this huge workforce, and there's no affordable housing. So um, being so close to Steamboat Springs, this hotel... Um, Doesn't do well as a hotel because all the great, you know, branded hotels have come into the town. It's not that big of a town. Um, And they have basically, like, shut them down. And so every mom-and-pop hotel in this town is already operating as an extended-stay hotel. Meaning most of them are already renting the rooms out at a monthly rate. So, like, for us to come in and say hey, do you want to stop living off of a mini fridge and a microwave, and would you like a whole kitchen, and to pay a little bit more for rent, like, they're all about it, like, they love it, I mean, the bank basically, like, begged us to to do this in their town, because they knew the demand was so high, so, and the second we have a room done, it's rented out, Um, so for me, like, I, being a business owner for so long, like, I'm very, like, risk adverse, I'll jump into things a second, like, I analyze it, and I see how amazing it is, like, i'm I'm on it, but like, I do take the risk into consideration very strongly. Um, so in Florida, same thing. like this town that we're buying in has grown one hundred and forty three percent in the last ten years, and it's projected to grow another almost eighteen percent in the next five years. And um, the studio apartments that I'll be competing with across one mile across the street, go for over $1,700 a month. Ours are gonna be like $1,200 a month, which is still expensive when you consider Omaha studio apartments. But to save $500 a month and be in the exact same location like will be full. Like there's no, there's just no question about it. And the reason is like we're taking an existing building and we're making it better. Whereas new developers, they have to build Class A. Because it, you know, it's so expensive. Like, you can't build a Class B building or Class C building as a new developer. You have to build Class A so that you can get your money that you're spending back out of it um, in high rents. Well, we don't have to do that because we're getting it so affordable because it's a rundown hotel that nobody wants. And we're taking that and we're converting it to apartments for lower rent. So we're doing that Class C plus, B minus, B. Um, So really nice finishes, very durable, but just like kitchenettes, no dishwasher, no pets allowed, you know, just kind of basic. And they just fill up instantly because they can't afford the Class A apartments that everybody's building. So that's kind of the... Strategy. Can you,
2: can you maybe talk a little bit about how you go about underwriting a deal that crosses your desk? Because you're going from Colorado to Florida mm-hmm. to not Omaha, apparently, right. but <laughs> other places. Right. So you're you're studying market demographics, crime. Yep. Right. Uh, yep. How. Many families versus you know seeing like how Household do you even size. find that stuff? And you just look at a census and be like, all right, roll your <laughs> sleeves up, and I'm going to spend ten hours researching this city. Uh, yeah, I
4: probably spend ten hours on a city. Yeah. yeah, but it's it, I mean it's all available. The the data's out there. Um, city data is probably my first go to, just as a, like an initial where's this where's this market at, and then just to see if it's even good enough based on crime. Um, household income, percentage of renters to household, you know, like, so I don't know, Omaha's, I haven't looked it up, but like most of these towns, it's like 30 to 50% of the households rent. So like, they're not interested in buying houses, you know, maybe they're coming in to work in the, you know, oil field, and they only plan on living there for a couple years. So they don't want to buy a house or, you know, things like that. So like this one in Florida, it's across the street from three distribution warehouse centers, um, a Walmart and Amazon and a FedEx. So, like, those people probably don't want to work at a distribution warehouse like the rest of their life. So, they'll come in and live with us for a year or two and then move on to a better job, hopefully. So, but yeah, I start, I have a whole spreadsheet of everything I'm looking for. I just go down the line. Um, and if it looks good, you know, there's a lot of two person households or less, um, low crime, like the US crime index is 270. So, I try to look in that, like, 150 to 200 range, so it's, like, lower than the average in the U.S. Um, You know, average household income, I like it to be, like, slightly higher than the average for the state. Um, Low unemployment rate. Um, And then I look at, like, because hospitals can be a really good source of industry, too, for traveling nurses, because, like, in Colorado, we're furnishing them, and then in Florida, we plan on not furnishing them. So, you know, kind of depending, like, if there's more... Um, Demand for furnishing or if there's not. So traveling nurses are always a good go-to tenant for that as well. Um, So, yeah, I I just go through just kind of all your standard demographics and look for, like, who would want to live in a studio apartment because most of these are going to be studios or small one bedrooms.
2: Okay, let's uh, peel this back even further. So let's say you get a deal that crosses your desk and you're like, okay, this looks interesting. It's a city that I'm looking into. Mm -hmm and you want to start kind of underwriting it. Like you've never been there. You think it might be a good opportunity. Who are you going to talk to that can help you piece together what you need in order to make a good decision on this? What are the, what are the phone calls you're going to make?
4: Well, first we just do like comparable analysis, just like any real estate that you buy, you know? So, but instead of, you know, how much are, is other real estate selling for? Cause that, I mean, it matters for your final underwriting as far as, like, what's our exit cap going to be and, like, um, how much money are, do we stand to make when we when we dispose of this asset. But um, really, it goes back to rental comps are, like, a huge part of it, right? And then the biggest challenge with that is trying to find the same class. So most of the time, you can't find it, and that's a good sign for that market. Um, is like, it's just not available, so then... Like what I do a lot of times is I look, I'll call around to the hotels that are leasing as extended stays for the month and figure out their monthly rate. And then no, I can most likely go a couple hundred dollars a month more than that. And then, you know, less than the class a apartments that are comparable. So um, it's just kind of a balancing act. And actually we way underestimated our Colorado uh, underwriting. So when, and we met with a property manager. They're a really key component to this because they know the neighborhood, right? They know their market, they know their demographics. So we, when we initially met with her, before we closed on the property or anything, you know, we were like, we're thinking, you know, six hundred dollars a month, and she's like, yeah, that's probably about right. Well, I think we're actually leasing them for like nine nine fifty a month. So like we were, we were like, this is a good deal at six hundred dollars a month, and now we're way higher than that. So. But I also try to be extremely conservative to be like, well, we're not sure, so like, let's keep it low just in case. So even in Florida, this like twelve hundred, it might be really low. Like we might end up being at fourteen hundred. Like I don't know. So, but I'd rather guess low when the the hotel rooms are running for nine hundred dollars a month, and they're just literally a hotel room, like with two beds and a mini fridge, with no service, like no housekeeping, nothing. Um, I'm pretty confident that $1,200 a month is a, is a pretty strong number for the finished product.
2: As a as a takeaway or maybe a learning lesson here, call more than one property manager and yes. get their opinion. Is that a good? Uh, yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. That would be good. Yeah. I should probably be doing that now with Florida. So, <laughs> <laughs> but like just to underwrite the deal, um, you know, asking, like I said, just comparables, asking the property managers, kind of getting a good basis, and then as as we do our due diligence process, obviously, like tweaking those numbers to make them more perfect but the market will always kind of change and and fluctuate too so
6: I got a couple of questions <clears throat> for each of you um, on the development of a hotel, what's kind of the basic math I guess is it population competition what's the minimum, number of hotel rooms is it a 50 100 what's the size based on I know you're in a couple smaller markets so when you're building a new one do you go well this one only supports 50 but we're going to build an 80 that kind of a math and then for you when you're doing these in different states and locations how are you getting your contractors your uh your your plans to, are you going to do so many two bedrooms versus one bedrooms versus three or four stories? How are you getting your contractors? Is it a general usually? Is it, um, and are you using local financing in that areas versus a, maybe a bigger lender that maybe you've worked with in the past? Sorry. Sure.
3: Uh, deciding what type of hotel and how many rooms. Yeah. Um, The industry um, has a reporting uh, mechanism called the STAR Report, the Smith Travel uh, Research. And this is one of the negatives of the hospitality industry because you have no trade secret. It's everything about your performance, your strategies, and so forth. It's all out there for your competitors to see. That's just the reality of the industry. Um, So what we can, not any specific hotel, but we can grow... Group, uh, I think there's a minimum of five you have to ask for. And all the big brands are required to report. We can't hide this information. So I can go to Smith Travel Research and say, hey, these five hotels, how are they performing? They will break down their performance by day, by month, by occupancy, by rate, for the last 10 years if I wanted. They'll send me graphs of how the group of hotels is performing and so forth. And because of that, I can determine, okay, right now, does this market run X amount of occupancy, this much rate, and if I build this much, if I invest this much, this is my debt service, and I feel I'll run a similar occupancy and rate, will it support it with cash flow? That's basically how we do that. We basically use this information. So there's no rocket science, honestly. Um, There's a lot of companies out there that will do feasibility studies, this and that. Do not waste your time or money. I remember developing this hotel. Uh, we were applying for our tax group financing, and the city's like, we require a feasibility study. And I said, well, I don't do that. I'm the feasibility study, and it's my money at risk. Why do you, why do you want me to spend 10 grand on someone else? They said, no, it's a requirement. So I called up this company in Minnesota, which they recommended, and he basically asked me, which way do you want this to go? <laughs> That's the value of a feasibility study and an appraisal. And going back to my original comment, is you're paying someone, a consultant, that has no vested interest in your business to tell you is it going to make money or not. Why would you give that to someone else when they have nothing to lose and you have everything to lose? So, again, I talk a lot, but okay. But going back to your original question is the data is out there. That's how we determine um, how many rooms and so forth to put in the market because we know how every hotel is performing in the market. It is almost public knowledge. Hey, quick question on that.
0: Uh, when you are building a hotel or remodeling a hotel, uh, you pick your brand. Is it true that the brand is says that you have to use all these specific materials?
3: Yeah, so all the brands um, have uh, requirements. You have to meet a majority, or not a majority, all their hallmarks. Um And some brands are more stricter than the others. Like for example, your Holiday Inn's, Holiday Expresses, Fairfields, and Hamptons. They want them cookie cutter. They have a prototype, you build it to the prototype. And now I do things a little different. I make it resemble the prototype 99% because I can use different brands and materials and this and that and so forth rather than, I try to cut the waste out without compromising the quality or the guest experience, but yes. But now when you start getting to some of the bigger hotels, more or boutique or the larger brands, as long as you have some of their all their key hallmark items, like the holiday and sign behind the front desk or the green up lights or their standard room decors and so forth, you can get a lot more creative with the public spaces and um, all the other type of services that you have.
0: Now when you are working with a brand that's a cookie cutter brand. I'm assuming that they're supplying you with all the materials you need and even though there's supply shortages but they have
3: those stockpiled in a oh, warehouse they don't supply anything oh okay. they well. they uh they say here's the prototype your architect designs as close as you can to it i try to arm wrestle the brand all the way through that process um but they tell you this brand of paint this sherwin williams color this type of flooring this and type but you have to go source it got it so um i do all of that yes but they don't they don't sit there and sell you any of the product. They don't sell anything. And to follow up that with
0: picking a brand, is there, um, is there benefits to going? I, I know you mentioned like the level of brand, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming, uh, from what I've heard through other podcasts that right now, because the, the stocks want, you know, are dictating how many hotels they want, they need to buy, right. Or how many brands they need to get out there. Are they paying
3: for that brand to be put on the building at this point? No, no. I pay through the nose. Let me give an example of a 80 room Fairfield by, for example, to even apply for consideration, you got to send them a $55,000 check with your application. If they choose you, then um there's, before you open the door of an 80 room Fairfield and between all the fees and expenses that you need to pay the brand directly, it's about $3 to $400,000 that the brand take makes up front on top of the ongoing fees as you operate.
2: Why are you in Omaha?
3: (laughs) I'll make this quick. Um, Mom and dad, I grew up, uh, we're blue collar. Um, uh, They came here from India um, in the early 70s. Um, And you know, very humble growing up and so forth. Very humble beginnings. Now, my mother's family, um, my uncles, uh, they came over from India as well, but uh, they were they started very small with the monpa hotels and so forth. Lived in them, ran them, cleaned the rooms and so forth, and things like that. Um, some good luck. They were they started developing their own uh, little motels. They used to call them um, what were they called? Luxury. Uh, luxury inns, okay, and they would pop these uh, two-story, forty-room boxes all throughout the Midwest because they did very well. Um, from then on, they started branding them: Days Inn, Super Eight, Ramada limited They were the uh, uh, probably the bigger, biggest uh, Super Eight, Ramada Inn, and Days Inn developers in the Midwest back in the late '80s, early '90s. And lo and behold, I was a free labor. So every long weekend, every uh, vacation, every summer break, my dad pushed me towards them. They never paid me. They didn't do it out of the goodness of their heart. I would spend summers cleaning rooms, doing laundry, running front desk. When I was older, they would use me to oversee their 20-room expansions. Um, But because of all of this, I didn't realize at the time that I got a lot of free experience. Not because they loved me. (laughs) But I vowed growing up, uh, that I will never be in this industry. Yeah. And I that, didn't have I, the money. Mom and dad didn't have the money either.
2: I, I was curious about that. Did you ever go to them and you're like, you know, uh, mom, dad, I think I want to be an accountant. And they're like,
3: <laughs> yeah, right. Pick up the hammer. <laughs> mom and dad wanted me to be a doctor. So I get to college, vowed to never look at another hotel and, uh, didn't realize that that much exposure with my uncles, um, completely molded my mind very differently although i did very good in grade school in college i just my i was just raised very differently because i spent so much time with my uncles a very business-minded entrepreneurial type of spirit so when i realized about second year in college of having too much fun that this doctor thing's never going to happen and if it did i'd be the worst doctor because my heart wasn't into it um is that why your partner's with a doctor now You just living living vicariously (laughs) there you go there you go Um, so because I learned so much from them um, my dad when I was 21 my dad had $50,000 only I mean again like I said uh, very humble uh, upbringing with mom and dad and I had nothing to lose and I don't know what happened just one day I was like I'm just going to do this So when I was younger, working for my uncles, um, they developed all the way from Iowa through Nebraska interstate, all the way through Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and so forth. So all those little two-story hotels and daisins that were built 20, 25 years, those were theirs. And I think you have a, (laughs) maybe the one in Craig, too. (laughs) So um, I got to see a lot of this. So... When I decided that this is something I can easily do, and again, I had nothing to lose. What's going to happen? I was 21, no kids. What are they not going to pay you? Like, Who cares? Right, Right, so (laughs) I went on on my own, and I remember I used to always drive through McCook, Nebraska. Um, And where's a nobody going to get a start? I can't go to Denver. All the big boys were there, and that's where my family's from, or any other big city. And I would always drive through McCook. So I learned the game back then of how to make something out of nothing. I seen my uncles do it. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but with the $50,000 my dad gave me, which that's all he had, literally all he had to his name. It was the biggest gamble of his life on me. I contacted Days in. I contacted an architect, cheap one, $5,000 is all I paid for the blueprints. Uh, Convinced the bank. Well, I made the $50,000 look more than that through things I learned from seeing my uncles do. And I was the general contractor for a 40-unit Days in in McCook, Nebraska. The day before I opened it, I fired my general manager because I couldn't afford to pay her. And I ran that hotel by myself for an entire year. I was a housekeeper, laundry. Um, I had a cordless phone. There was an apartment behind the front desk. I would, two or three times a week, between 2 and 3 a.m., I'd go to the 24-hour Walmart to pick up my breakfast supplies, and I ran the hotel by myself. And I outdid the Holiday Inn Express down the street. Made a lot of cash, and I sold it for about 35% more three years later. And then I built another one, Hastings, and then from there I went to Lincoln and built my first Express and so forth. And then uh, Dr. Gengar, um, it took us about six to seven months to convince each other. He, he approached me, because by then I was buying franchise rights uh, in certain areas, and um, I was across the street from his business. And he takes me to a football game. He's like, "How long? How are you going to do all this one at a time?" I was just a dumb kid, you know. And um, it's about six to seven months. Convinced me. He's like, "Let's do it all together." So him and I are equal equity partners, uh, dollar for dollar, and um, we got together. Um, it's one of those rare um, partnerships um, where. We do not take our personal situation when we make business decisions. It's solely what's best for the business, even if it hurts us personally. It's that philosophy where we can fight like cats and dogs negotiating a business thing or disagreement between us, but as soon as that door's closed, it's personal, it doesn't bleed into it. It's a very disciplined partnership. But yeah, that's how I started. Um, And now I take care of mom and dad and so forth. Things have been very fortunate. Do you uh, did you put them to work now? It's like your turn, mom and dad. They're they're on the payroll here. They're back there folding no, towels. No, no, no. They offer all the time. I don't let them. I don't. I don't let them uh, do it at all. They offer to this day. They still offer.
4: <laughs> so, are you done, Owen? I, I'm done. Uh, yeah, probably. not. Probably
3: not. But go ahead.
4: <laughs> um, no, I guess uh, Owen kind of stole my thunder. But um, I was going to ask Kurt. Right? Uh, I was going to ask you what, how you got into the hotel gig so it's really interesting but Andrea I guess one of my biggest questions as an investor is going outside of Nebraska. I'm thinking more along the lines of tax purposes. Um what is the biggest thing that you've had to like hurdle jump over when it comes to like taxes and investing outside of Nebraska versus inside when you live here? Um I mean Taxes don't really matter what state you live in and where you invest. Because, like, the LLC is, I mean, we have a Colorado LLC, but, like, that doesn't matter. So, like, we, and, like, we don't have hospitality tax, you know, because we're an apartment. So, um, I mean, there's not really, like, I don't have to pay Colorado income tax for me personally because the business owns it, you know. So, um, I guess there's not really, like, tax disadvantages to investing out of state, um, there's a lot of tax advantages for you know, multifamily, if you guys don't know that. Um, and ex- especially with what we're doing, considering it's a complete renovation. If you guys, I, I think if you were at the, um, tax one, you learned a little bit about cost segregation, like, because we're buying brand new everything, like the cost segregation is huge. And so like there's a huge uh, loss carry forward for the passive investors. And so it's like a really good – it's even a bigger tax advantage than just a standard apartment building. So so that's one benefit. Uh, But I don't really – think there are any disadvantages if there are i'm too dumb to know them yet so (laughs) but no i mean um i mean i've i've done business in iowa and nebraska and cross state lines and things like that in my other businesses and like it's just never been it's not an issue so you could probably speak to that a little bit too but um to circle back to the other question about the and it kind of relates to challenges out of state like you said um and the construction thing So what do we do about uh, contractors? So with this first one we did, um, we hired a local contractor. And in a town of 10,000 people, we had two options. So we had a custom home built. We had two custom home builders. And everyone told us that the one was like ridiculously expensive. So then we went with the other one. (laughs) And we didn't even get a quote from the other one because everyone's like, oh, he's so busy and he's so expensive and you'll never, you know. Um, So mistake number one. um, So we've learned our lesson with that as far as not necessarily just going with the more affordable one just because he's more affordable, which that's kind of a rookie mistake. But um, so Axel and I have done a lot of the um, construction ourselves, which luckily we already know how to do that. Um, But it wasn't in our plan necessarily. So that's been a huge learning experience. So for our Florida one. I absolutely will not do this again without a contractor as a partner. So we have, I actually met a guy at uh, the Bigger Pockets conference in October. I just happened to sit next to him at dinner one time. And he's like, oh, I'm a contractor in Orlando and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll probably never invest in Florida. Um, Just because I didn't think, it's such a hot market, if you guys don't know that. Like, it's like one of the top markets in the United States. So I was like, I'll never be able to afford it. And, um, then I came, my other partner brought this across and he's like, oh, it's in basically Orlando. And so then I called up the guy I met and I'm like, Hey, would you be interested in partnering with us? So we, you know, got to know each other better. And like, as an equity partner, I know he's going to have a vested interest in making sure that the, that he doesn't just like ditch the construction for like a month and not care that nothing's happening. Um, and understand that every day that a room is not converted is like costing us, you know, X amount of dollars. So he understands that. He already owns a multi million dollar construction company. So for him, this isn't like starting from the ground up. Like he already has the crew, he already has the project manager. Um, and any, and then because Florida is so great, if we can find more in that area. Like we'd like to kind of farm central Florida a little bit because I already have him as a partner. So it's, it's just going to be, or if it isn't another market, like I will not invest in another market again without a construction partner. So I think for me being out of state, like that's key. And then, um, finding an awesome property management company too. So, because I cannot manage, it. I'm a horrible property manager anyways, let alone, like, being out of state. So, um, you know, that that's the two key players that have to be there for it to make sense. Yeah.
2: Question? Andrea.
4: Yes.
2: <laughs> let's talk how... Do you get to a point where you're like, I'm going to buy a hotel? Because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, do we have an audience full of multi-millionaires? Everybody? (laughs) Yes? Okay, great. Uh, How does one start? So most people are like, hey, I want to get into real estate investing. I'm going to buy a single family and then another one and another one. Then they get the hang of it and they kind of like go on to multifamily. And the hotel business seems like that's where the rich people buy stuff right? And maybe it is, but how do you fill in the gaps from somebody who's just getting started to buying a hotel and then buying another hotel? Talk maybe about, you mentioned you have a contractor that's been a key, you know, piece of this whole Florida expedition that you're exploring here. Um, how do you put this all together? And, and I also have another, this is kind of a long question, but how is financing right now? Um, Covid, I'm assuming it wasn't all like banks are like, take my money, uh, go buy some hotels when you have like
3: 9% occupancy. Is that fair, Kurt? Okay, so during COVID, the banks all turned their backs to us. Um, the main thing is this, is that leverage will bite you. So be very careful. There's two things. Avoid leverage as much as possible and your cost basis. Your cost basis is permanent. So be careful how much your asset costs you. I don't care if it's a $10 asset or a $10 million asset. Whatever your cost is, that is with you forever. You can't change that. So in real estate, rule one one is make sure you can limit and reduce your cost basis as much as possible. Don't get caught up on trying to make it too pretty, too amazing, don't let your emotions get caught up in it. This is mistakes I've made. And I've lost a lot trying to do that. Um, now the funny thing about COVID and lending is it only lasted three months. There is so much liquidity in the market, guys. Bankers have to loan money. That's the only way they can make money is lending money. And I am fielding calls every day, but at least four to five different bankers trying to loan me money just because they have too much liquidity. So this is the best time if you're looking to borrow money and you have a decent business plan, do it. Um, Highly recommended because the banks are flush. Um, Were were you in
2: Dr. Gangar
3: Like, I don't know, is he like an ENT? Oh, he's (laughs) uh, retired thoracic surgeon.
2: Okay, so you are not like going into his office and being like, dude, pandemic, what do you know? Like, we're (laughs) in a hotel business,
3: this is bad. It was bad, it was scary. Um, I mean... The mortgages don't stop. Um, You have to still keep your key people because those are going to be the people that take you out of the pandemic when things get better. Um, It was learning from a lot of mistakes. One of the benefits of doing this when I was really young and behaving in a way that I had nothing to lose is I made all those mistakes at an early time in my life where I didn't have much to lose. So I've learned from all those mistakes of getting too emotionally invested, overspending this, that, and so forth. I learned, again, like I said, two things. If you can remember this, my two pieces of advice is leverage. Don't, borrowing, minimize your borrowing as much as possible. And second, what your asset costs you. You know, you're doing this to make money. It should be non-emotional. If you don't have to repaint the building, and actually, ask yourself this question. Will spending this money give me more customers? Or not spending this money, will it take away my customers? That's it. That's as simple as it gets.
2: Good stuff. Um, we're getting kind of close on time here. Andrea, sorry, mm-hmm. I kind of hijacked that question. But uh, I'm okay. curious your thoughts on that. So uh, we talk, We were talking about getting started. You're now uh, looking for distressed hotels to buy. Financing partners, like I know that's a big nebulous question here, but uh is that something that anybody can do, or what steps would a newer investor take to uh kind of start bridging the gap between not knowing what the hell's going on to like I'm going to Florida and buying a 130 <laughs> unit hotel?
4: Um so like my my knee-jerk reaction is yeah, anybody can do it. Um but that's kind of my husband makes fun of me because like when I was in high school, I could do I I did like really good acrylic oil or uh, acrylic paintings, and I'm like, well, anybody can paint. You just like look at it and you just paint it. Like it's not hard. And he's like, no, not everybody can do that. So um, I have this skewed vision of like optimism that like anybody can do it. It's great. Just jump in. Um, but also, I mean, kind of like you, like I've worked really hard with a really hardworking family my whole life. So my dad was a contractor. He was a framer and then, you know, did siding and he built some spec homes in the 90s, which didn't go great for him. And so he's kind of like, he's been in real estate and he's been in construction, but he's also jaded by it. So um, I've grown up doing very hard work. Um, And so, and then we've flipped homes, we've been landlords, we've done kind of the single family home. We kind of done all the, you know, traditional standard things and just knew it wasn't right for us. And so um, we took a break back in 2017. We sold all of our single family rentals and we were just like, we need a break from real estate. Um, And have been, you know, in those next couple years, we refinanced our home and then Axel's job just, he's a salesman and he's a badass. So he like (laughs) made more money every year. And so we just kept kind of, saving it, you know, compiling it, waiting for the right opportunity. And so we started looking at um, multifamily here locally to be like, okay, well, what could we afford? And we were kind of playing with like the bur method strategy to be like, okay, well, could we pay cash for like a sixplex and then, you know, bur it? And, you know, we were just trying to like tweak it. And then um I just reached outside of my comfort zone and went on Crexy and did like a five-state radius. And I was like, well, if we can drive to it, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. And um, I found actually this really crappy hotel in Craig, Colorado. And then it just so happened that there were four hotels for sale in that town. And I was like, okay, that's either a red flag or like something else is going on. And, um, we went to, we just went to do our due diligence and we thought, we knew we could get financed for this crappy one that we were looking at buying. And, um, we get there and it was just, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was like a crack house. Like, and we're like, oh my God, we'd have to like get rid of all these people. And like the foundation was really bad. It just wasn't a good buy. Right. And so then, um, we fell in love with this building that we ended up buying and way out of our price range. Like I didn't even know. I was just like, uh, how can we even do this? Well, it circles back to financing where we, we met with a local bank and we're like, okay, we want to buy one of these properties. And she was just like, okay, well, this is what we need. We need 25% in cash or collateral. I'm like, well, what do you mean by collateral? And like, what counts, you know? And she's, we're going over it. And I'm like, so if we have real estate worth, you know, 25% down, we don't have to put any cash into it. And she's like, right. I'm like, okay, well, maybe we could make this property work, you know? And so, cause we have family that has collateral and we're like, well, maybe that didn't, didn't end up happening, but that gave me the confidence to try, right? To be like, oh, well, if I, if I don't have to come up with, $250,000 cash, like maybe I can buy it. Um, And so it just gave me the confidence to like really dig in and really underwrite the deal and really like, you know, move forward like it was a reality. And then um, once I underwrote it, I had networked with enough people in multifamily to be like, hey, you want to take a look at this? And they, of course, jumped right all, all over it because it's just so much better returns than standard multifamily. Um, and so it was extremely easy to raise, uh, the capital, um, and the bank, like I said, was like dying to lend us the money, kind of like you said, and they, they did flat out say, if it's a, if you're going to keep it as a hotel, we will only loan you 50%. If you're going to change it to apartments, we will loan you 75%. So it definitely, um, they were not interested in the hospitality industry, and um even their board when they had to uh, like approve our financing towards the end like right before closing there was like one guy on the board was like i'm not sure because it's a motel and she's like they're converting it it's fine um and so like they were very excited to loan us the money the investors are very excited to put equity into it so we did put just as much equity into it or capital into it as all of our equity partners but Um, that came from a lot of discipline, a lot of saving, a lot of weight, you know, holding. Um, It's hard to hold large sums of money and just waiting for an opportunity. So um, we did that, and and we were just fortunate enough to come across this opportunity, and um, I guess that's how it started, and that's where we're at. So I do think anybody can do it, but not if you've never done anything in real estate before, <laughs> maybe start with a few little flips and uh, maybe even be like a passive investor if you have that kind of money and and learn and then and then you can jump into it. So
3: on that note, um, a lot of hotels did not make it through the pandemic. It wasn't this big fire sale that everyone expected, but there are some bank owned assets out there. That is a great avenue if you guys are interested. And something what she's doing is going to lenders directly that are holding these assets that they've taken back because the original owner couldn't afford it or couldn't make the mortgage. Trust me, those are the best deals yeah um you just I mean you there's several banks I would say even here like uh you know Pinnacle, Great Western Bank, uh First National, Union Bank and Trust, they have decent sized hospitality uh, portfolios. I can't say that they have any distressed assets or not, but that's one great avenue: is going to lenders directly and say, "Hey, can you show me your portfolio of assets that you're taking back, or have taken back, or are close to taken back?" Trust me, they will be very happy to show it to you, and you can get a phenomenal deal. They and, and chances are, if you're going to change the use, they'll probably finance you directly themselves, just because they want to be able to uh, mitigate the damages against their balance sheet. So. I know that uh, Sanjay, which was supposed
0: to be here tonight, and he had a hotel emergency, uh, That that's his business structure is that he, ter- he buys those bank distressed properties and uh, turns them and then uh, makes a quite a nice profit on those. Uh, and we'll, we'll give him a little bit more of that on a podcast in the future. But um, definitely one, something we'll look into. But thank you so much, guys. We've gone a little bit past our time tonight. Uh, I how can this group support you guys? That's my that's my question for you guys. Before we conclude,
3: no, guys, I'm just glad you guys came. You guys tolerated my long-winded answers. Um, thank you very much for showing up. Awesome.